This is Audible. Penguin presents the Heroes of Olympus, Book Four: The House of Hades, by Rick Riordan, read by Nick Chamian. Chapter One: Hazel. During the third attack, Hazel almost ate a boulder. She was peering into the fog, wondering how it could be so difficult to fly across one stupid mountain range. When the ship's alarm bells sounded. Hard support! Nico yelled from the foremast of the flying ship. Back at the helm, Leo yanked the wheel. The Argo Two veered left, its aerial oars slashing through the clouds like rows of knives. Hazel made the mistake of looking over the rail. A dark spherical shape hurtled toward her. She thought, "Why is the moon coming at us?" Then she yelped and hit the deck. The huge rock passed so close overhead it blew her hair out of her face. Crack! The foremast collapsed. Sail, spars, and Nico all crashing to the deck. The boulder, roughly the size of a pickup truck, tumbled off into the fog like it had important business elsewhere. Nico, Hazel scrambled over to him as Leo brought the ship level. I'm fine. Nico muttered, kicking folds of canvas off his legs. She helped him up, and they stumbled to the bow. Hazel peeked over more carefully this time. The clouds parted just long enough to reveal the top of the mountain below them—a spearhead of black rock jutting from mossy green slopes. Standing at the summit was a mountain god, one of the Numina Montanum, Jason had called them. Or Ori in Greek. Whatever you called them, they were nasty. Like the others they had faced, this one wore a simple white tunic over skin as rough and dark as basalt. He was about twenty feet tall and extremely muscular, with a flowing white beard, scraggly hair, and a wild look in his eyes, like a crazy hermit. He bellowed something Hazel didn't understand, but it obviously wasn't welcoming. With his bare hands, he pried another chunk of rock from his mountain and began shaping it into a ball. The scene disappeared in the fog, but when the mountain god bellowed again, other Numina answered in the distance, their voices echoing through the valleys. Stupid rock gods! Leo yelled from the helm. That's the third time I've had to replace that mast. You think they grow on trees? Nico frowned. Masts are from trees. That's not the point. Leo snatched up one of his controls, rigged from a Nintendo Wii stick, and spun it in a circle. A few feet away, a trap door opened in the deck. A celestial bronze cannon rose. Hazel just had time to cover her ears before it discharged into the sky, spraying a dozen metal spheres that trailed green fire. The spheres grew spikes in midair, like helicopter blades, and spun away into the fog. A moment later, a series of explosions crackled across the mountains, followed by the outraged roar of mountain gods. Ha! Leo yelled. Unfortunately, Hazel guessed. Judging from their last two encounters, 
Leo's newest weapon had only annoyed the Numina. Another boulder whistled through the air off to their starboard side. Nico yelled, Get us out of here! Leo muttered some unflattering comments about Numina, but he turned the wheel. The engines hummed. Magical rigging lashed itself tight, and the ship tacked to port. The Argo, too, picked up speed, retreating northwest, as they'd been doing for the past two days. Hazel didn't relax until they were out of the mountains. The fog cleared. Below them, morning sunlight illuminated the Italian countryside. Rolling green hills and golden fields, not too different from those in Northern California. Hazel could almost imagine she was sailing home to Camp Jupiter. The thought weighed on her chest. Camp Jupiter had only been her home for nine months since Nico had brought her back from the underworld. But she missed it more than her birthplace of New Orleans, and definitely more than Alaska, where she died back in 1942. She missed her bunk in the fifth cohort barracks. She missed dinners in the mess hall, with wind spirits whisking platters through the air and legionnaires joking about the war games. She wanted to wander the streets of New Rome, holding hands with Frank Jong. She wanted to experience just being a regular girl for once, with an actual sweet, caring boyfriend. Most of all, she wanted to feel safe. She was tired of being scared and worried all the time. She stood on the quarter deck as Nico picked mass splinters out of his arms, and Leo punched buttons on the ship's console. Well, that was sucktastic, Leo said. Should I wake the others? Hazel was tempted to say yes, but the other crew members had taken the night shift and had earned their rest. They were exhausted from defending the ship. Every few hours, it seemed, some Roman monster had decided the Argo II looked like a tasty treat. A few weeks ago, Hazel wouldn't have believed that anyone could sleep through a Numina attack. But now, she imagined her friends were still snoring away below decks. Whenever she got a chance to crash, she slept like a coma patient. They need rest, she said. We'll have to figure out another way on our own. Huh. Leo scowled at his monitor. In his tattered work shirt and grease-splattered jeans, he looked like he'd just lost a wrestling match with a locomotive. Ever since their friends Percy and Annabeth had fallen into Tartarus, Leo had been working almost nonstop. He'd been acting angrier and even more driven than usual. Hazel worried about him, but part of her was relieved by the change. Whenever Leo smiled and joked, he looked too much like Sammy, his great-grandfather, Hazel's first boyfriend, back in 1942. Ugh, why did her life have to be so complicated? Another way, Leo muttered. Do you see one? On his monitor glowed a map of Italy. The Apennine Mountains ran down the middle of the boot-shaped country. A green dot for the Argo II blinked on the western side of the range, a few hundred miles north of Rome. Their path should have been simple. They needed to get to a place called Epirus in Greece and find an old temple called the House of Hades, 
or Pluto, as the Romans called him, or as Hazel liked to think of him, the world's worst absent father. To reach Epirus, all they had to do was go straight east, over the Apennines and across the Adriatic Sea. But it hadn't worked out that way. Each time they tried to cross the spine of Italy, the mountain gods attacked. For the past two days, they'd skirted north, hoping to find a safe pass, with no luck. The Numina Montanum were sons of Gia, Hazel's least favorite goddess. That made them very determined enemies. The Argo, too, couldn't fly high enough to avoid their attacks. And even with all its defenses, the ship couldn't make it across the range without being smashed to pieces. It's our fault, Hazel said. Nico's in mine. The Numina can sense us. She glanced at her half-brother. Since they'd rescued him from the giants, he'd started to regain his strength, but he was still painfully thin. His black shirt and jeans hung off his skeletal frame. Long, dark hair framed his sunken eyes. His olive complexion had turned a sickly greenish white, like the color of tree sap. In human years, he was barely fourteen, just a year older than Hazel. But that didn't tell the whole story. Like Hazel, Nico D'Angelo was a demigod from another era. He radiated a kind of old energy. A melancholy that came from knowing he didn't belong in the modern world. Hazel hadn't known him very long, but she understood, even shared his sadness. The children of Hades, Pluto, whichever, rarely had happy lives. And judging from what Nico had told her the night before, their biggest challenge was yet to come when they reached the house of Hades. A challenge he'd implored her to keep secret from the others. Nico gripped the hilt of his Stygian iron sword. Earth spirits don't like children of the underworld. That's true. We get under their skin. Literally. But I think the Numina could sense this ship anyway. We're carrying the Athena Parthenos. That thing is like a magical beacon. Hazel shivered, thinking of the massive statue that took up most of the hold. They'd sacrificed so much saving it from the cavern under Rome, but they had no idea what to do with it. So far, the only thing it seemed to be good for was alerting more monsters to their presence. Leo traced his finger down the map of Italy. So, crossing the mountains is out. Thing is, they go a long way in either direction. We could go by sea, Hazel suggested. Sail around the southern tip of Italy. That's a long way, Nico said. Plus, we don't have... His voice cracked. You know, our sea expert, Percy. The name hung in the air like an impending storm. Percy Jackson, son of Poseidon. Probably the demigod Hazel admired most. He'd saved her life so many times on their quest to Alaska, but when he had needed Hazel's help in Rome, she'd failed him. She'd watched, powerless, as he and Annabeth had plunged into that pit. Hazel took a deep breath. Percy and Annabeth were still alive. She knew that in her heart.
she could still help them if she could get to the house of Hades, if she could survive the challenge Nico had warned her about. What about continuing north? she asked. There has to be a break in the mountains or something. Leo fiddled with the bronze Archimedes sphere that he'd installed on the console, his newest and most dangerous toy. Every time Hazel looked at the thing, her mouth went dry. She worried that Leo would turn the wrong combination on the sphere and accidentally eject them all from the deck, or blow up the ship, or turn the Argo 2 into a giant toaster. Fortunately, they got lucky. The sphere grew a camera lens and projected a 3D image of the Apennine Mountains above the console. I don't know. Leo examined the hologram. I don't see any good passes to the north, but I like that idea better than backtracking south. I'm done with Rome. No one argued with that. Rome had not been a good experience. Whatever we do, Nico said, we have to hurry. Every day that Annabeth and Percy are in Tartarus. He didn't need to finish. They had to hope Percy and Annabeth could survive long enough to find the Tartarus side of the Doors of Death. Then, assuming the Argo II could reach the House of Hades, they might be able to open the doors on the mortal side, save their friends, and seal the entrance, stopping Gia's forces from being reincarnated in the mortal world over and over. Yes, nothing could go wrong with that plan. Nico scowled at the Italian countryside below them. Maybe we should wake the others. This decision affects us all. No, Hazel said. We can find a solution. She wasn't sure why she felt so strongly about it, but since leaving Rome, the crew had started to lose its cohesion. They'd been learning to work as a team, then bam their two most important members fell into Tartarus. Percy had been their backbone. He'd given them confidence as they sailed across the Atlantic and into the Mediterranean. As for Annabeth, she'd been the de facto leader of the quest. She'd recovered the Athena Parthenos single-handedly. She was the smartest of the seven, the one with the answers. If Hazel woke up the rest of the crew every time they had a problem, they'd just start arguing again feeling more and more hopeless. She had to make Percy and Annabeth proud of her. She had to take the initiative. She couldn't believe her only role in this quest would be what Nico had warned her of, removing the obstacle waiting for them in the House of Hades. She pushed the thought aside. We need some creative thinking, she said. Another way to cross those mountains, or a way to hide ourselves from the Numina. Nico sighed. If I was on my own, I could shadow travel. But that won't work for an entire ship. And honestly, I'm not sure I have the strength to even transport myself anymore. I could maybe rig some kind of camouflage, Leo said. Like a smokescreen to hide us in the clouds? He didn't sound very enthusiastic. Hazel stared down at the rolling farmland, thinking about what lay beneath it. The realm of her father, 
Lord of the Underworld. She'd only met Pluto once, and she hadn't even realized who he was. She certainly had never expected help from him. Not when she was alive the first time, not during her time as a spirit in the Underworld, not since Nico had brought her back to the world of the living. Her dad's servant, Thanatos, god of death, had suggested that Pluto might be doing Hazel a favor by ignoring her. After all, she wasn't supposed to be alive. If Pluto took notice of her, he might have to return her to the land of the dead. Which meant calling on Pluto would be a very bad idea. And yet... Please, Dad. She found herself praying. I have to find a way to your temple in Greece, the House of Hades. If you're down there, show me what to do. At the edge of the horizon, a flicker of movement caught her eye. Something small and beige, racing across the fields at incredible speed, leaving a vapor trail like a plane's. Hazel couldn't believe it. She didn't dare hope. But it had to be. Orion. What? Nico asked. Leo let out a happy whoop as the dust cloud got closer. It's her horse, man. You missed that whole part. We haven't seen him since Kansas. Hazel laughed. The first time she'd laughed in days. It felt so good to see her old friend. About a mile to the north, the small beige dot circled a hill and stopped at the summit. He was difficult to make out, but when the horse reared and whinnied, the sound carried all the way to the Argo too. Hazel had no doubt. It was Orion. We have to meet him, she said. He's here to help. Yeah, okay. Leo scratched his head. But, uh... We talked about not landing the ship on the ground anymore, remember? You know, with Gia wanting to destroy us and all? Just get me close, and I'll use the rope ladder. Hazel's heart was pounding. I think Orion wants to tell me something. Chapter 2 Hazel Hazel had never felt so happy. Well except for maybe on the night of the victory feast at Camp Jupiter, when she'd kissed Frank for the first time. But this was a close second. As soon as she reached the ground, she ran to Orion and threw her arms around his neck. I missed you. She pressed her face into the horse's warm flank, which smelled of sea salt and apples. Where have you been? Orion nickered. Hazel wished she could speak hoarse like Percy could, but she got the general idea. Orion sounded impatient, as if saying, No time for sentiment, girl. Come on. You want me to go with you? She guessed. Orion bobbed his head, trotting in place. His dark brown eyes gleamed with urgency. Hazel still couldn't believe he was actually here. He could run across any surface, even the sea, but she'd been afraid he wouldn't follow them into the ancient lands. The Mediterranean was too dangerous for demigods and their allies. He wouldn't have come unless Hazel was in dire need, and he seemed so agitated. Anything that could make a fearless horse skittish should have terrified Hazel. 
Instead, she felt elated. She was so tired of being seasick and airsick. Aboard the Argo, too, she felt about as useful as a box of ballast. She was glad to be back on solid ground, even if it was Gia's territory. She was ready to ride. Hazel! Nico called down from the ship. What's going on? It's fine. She crouched down and summoned a gold nugget from the earth. She was getting better at controlling her power. Precious stones hardly ever popped up around her by accident anymore, and pulling gold from the ground was easy. She fed Orion the nugget, his favorite snack. Then she smiled up at Leo and Nico, who were watching her from the top of the ladder a hundred feet above. Orion wants to take me somewhere. The boys exchanged nervous looks. Uh, Leo pointed north. Please tell me he's not taking you into that. Hazel had been so focused on Orion she hadn't noticed the disturbance. A mile away, on the crest of the next hill, a storm had gathered over some old stone ruins. Maybe the remains of a Roman temple or a fortress. A funnel cloud snaked its way down toward the hill like an inky black finger. Hazel's mouth tasted like blood. She looked at Orion. You want to go there? Orion whinnied, as if to say, Uh, duh. Well, Hazel had asked for help. Was this her dad's answer? She hoped so, but she sensed something besides Pluto at work in that storm. Something dark, powerful, and not necessarily friendly. Still, this was her chance to help her friends, to lead instead of follow. She tightened the straps of her imperial gold cavalry sword and climbed onto Orion's back. I'll be okay, she called up to Nico and Leo. Stay put and wait for me. Wait for how long? Nico asked. What if you don't come back? Don't worry, I will, she promised hoping it was true. She spurred Orion, and they shot across the countryside, heading straight for the growing tornado. Chapter 3 Hazel The storm swallowed the hill in a swirling cone of black vapor. Orion charged straight into it. Hazel found herself at the summit, but it felt like a different dimension. The world lost its color. The walls of the storm encircled the hill in murky black. The sky churned gray. The crumbling ruins were bleached so white they almost glowed. Even Orion had turned from caramel brown to a dark shade of ash. In the eye of the tempest, the air was still. Hazel's skin tingled coolly as if she'd been rubbed with alcohol. In front of her, an arched gateway led through mossy walls into some sort of enclosure. Hazel couldn't see much through the gloom, but she felt a presence within, as if she were a chunk of iron close to a large magnet. Its pull was irresistible, dragging her forward. Yet she hesitated. 
She reined in Orion, and he clopped impatiently, the ground crackling under his hooves. Wherever he stepped, the grass, dirt, and stones turned white like frost. Hazel remembered the Hubbard Glacier in Alaska, how the surface had cracked under their feet. She remembered the floor of that horrible cavern in Rome crumbling to dust, plunging Percy and Annabeth into Tartarus. She hoped this black-and-white hilltop wouldn't dissolve under her, but she decided it was best to keep moving. Let's go then, boy. Her voice sounded muffled, as if she were speaking into a pillow. Orion trotted through the stone archway. Ruined walls bordered a square courtyard about the size of a tennis court. Three other gateways, one in the middle of each wall, led north, east, and west. In the center of the yard, two cobblestone paths intersected, making a cross. Mist hung in the air. Hazy shreds of white that coiled and undulated as if they were alive. Not mist, Hazel realized. The mist. All her life, she'd heard about the mist. The supernatural veil that obscured the world of myth from the sight of mortals. It could deceive humans, even demigods, into seeing monsters as harmless animals or gods as regular people. Hazel had never thought of it as actual smoke, but as she watched it curling around Orion's legs, floating through the broken arches of the ruined courtyard, the hairs stood up on her arms. Somehow she knew this white stuff was pure magic. In the distance, a dog howled. Orion wasn't usually scared of anything, but he reared, puffing nervously. It's okay. Hazel stroked his neck. We're in this together. I'm going to get down, all right? She slid off Orion's back. Instantly, he turned and ran. Orion, wait! But he'd already disappeared the way he'd come. So much for being in this together. Another howl cut through the air. Closer this time. Hazel stepped toward the center of the courtyard. The mist clung to her like freezer fog. Hello? She called. Hello, a voice answered. The pale figure of a woman appeared at the northern gateway. No, wait. She stood at the eastern entrance. No, the western. Three smoky images of the same woman moved in unison toward the center of the ruins. Her form was blurred, made from mist, and she was trailed by two smaller wisps of smoke darting at her heels like animals. Some sort of pets? She reached the center of the courtyard and her three forms merged into one. She solidified into a young woman in a dark, sleeveless gown. Her golden hair was gathered into a high-set ponytail, ancient Greek style. Her dress was so silky it seemed to ripple, as if the cloth were ink spilling off her shoulders. She looked no more than twenty, but Hazel knew that meant nothing. Hazel Levesque, said the woman. She was beautiful but deathly pale. 
Once, back in New Orleans, Hazel had been forced to attend a wake for a dead classmate. She remembered the lifeless body of the young girl in the open casket. Her face had been made up prettily, as if she were resting, which Hazel had found terrifying. This woman reminded Hazel of that girl, except the woman's eyes were open and completely black. When she tilted her head, she seemed to break into three different people again, misty after-images blurring together, like a photograph of someone moving too fast to capture. Who are you? Hazel's fingers twitched at the hilt of her sword. I mean, which goddess? Hazel was sure of that much. This woman radiated power. Everything around them, the swirling mist, the monochromatic storm, the eerie glow of the ruins, was because of her presence. Ah, the woman nodded. Let me give you some light. She raised her hands. Suddenly, she was holding two old-fashioned reed torches, guttering with fire. The mist receded to the edges of the courtyard. At the woman's sandaled feet, the two wispy animals took on solid form. One was a black Labrador retriever. The other was a long, gray, furry rodent with a white mask around its face. A weasel, maybe? The woman smiled serenely. I am Hecate, she said, goddess of magic. We have much to discuss if you're to live through tonight. Chapter 4 Hazel Hazel wanted to run, but her feet seemed stuck to the white glazed ground. On either side of the crossroads, two dark metal torch stands erupted from the dirt like plant stalks. Hecate fixed her torches in them, then walked a slow circle around Hazel, regarding her as if they were partners in some eerie dance. The black dog and the weasel followed in her wake. You are like your mother, Hecate decided. Hazel's throat constricted. You knew her? Of course. Marie was a fortune teller. She dealt in charms and curses and grigri. I am the goddess of magic. Those pure black eyes seemed to pull at Hazel, as if trying to extract her soul. During her first lifetime in New Orleans, Hazel had been tormented by the kids at St. Agnes' school because of her mother. They called Marie Levesque a witch. The nuns muttered that Hazel's mother was trading with the devil. If the nuns were scared of my mom, Hazel wondered, what would they make of this goddess? Many fear me, Hecate said, as if reading her thoughts. But magic is neither good nor evil. It is a tool, like a knife. Is a knife evil? Only if the wielder is evil. My... my mother, Hazel stammered. She didn't believe in magic. Not really. She was just faking it for the money. 
the weasel chittered and bared its teeth. Then it made a squeaking sound from its back end. Under other circumstances, a weasel passing gas might have been funny, but Hazel didn't laugh. The rodent's red eyes glared at her balefully, like tiny coals. Peace, Gale, said Hecate. She gave Hazel an apologetic shrug. Gale does not like hearing about non-believers and con artists. She herself was once a witch, you see. Your weasel was a witch? She's a polecat, actually, Hecate said. But yes, Gale was once a disagreeable human witch. She had terrible personal hygiene, plus extreme, uh, digestive issues. Hecate waved her hand in front of her nose. It gave my other followers a bad name. Okay. Hazel tried not to look at the weasel. She really didn't want to know about the rodent's intestinal problems. At any rate, Hecate said, I turned her into a polecat. She's much better as a polecat. Hazel swallowed. She looked at the black dog, which was affectionately nuzzling the goddess's hand. And your Labrador? Oh, she's Hecuba, the former queen of Troy, Hecate said, as if that should be obvious. The dog grunted. You're right, Hecuba, the goddess said. We don't have time for long introductions. The point is, Hazel Levesque, your mother may have claimed not to believe, but she had true magic. Eventually, she realized this. When she searched for a spell to summon the god Pluto, I helped her find it. You? Yes. Hecate continued circling Hazel. I saw potential in your mother. I see even more potential in you. Hazel's head spun. She remembered her mother's confession just before she had died, how she'd summoned Pluto, how the god had fallen in love with her, and how, because of her greedy wish, her daughter Hazel had been born with a curse. Hazel could summon riches from the earth, but anyone who used them would suffer and die. Now this goddess was saying that she had made all that happen, my mother suffered because of that magic. My whole life. Your life wouldn't have happened without me, Hecate said flatly. I have no time for your anger, neither do you. Without my help, you will die. The black dog snarled. The polecat snapped its teeth and passed gas. Hazel felt like her lungs were filling with hot sand. What kind of help? she demanded. Hecate raised her pale arms. The three gateways she'd come from, north, east, and west, began to swirl with mist. A flurry of black and white images glowed and flickered, like the old silent movies that still played in theaters sometimes when Hazel was small. 
In the western doorway, Roman and Greek demigods in full armor fought one another on a hillside under a large pine tree. The grass was strewn with the wounded and the dying. Hazel saw herself riding Orion, charging through the melee and shouting, trying to stop the violence. In the gateway to the east, Hazel saw the Argo II plunging through the sky above the Apennines. Its rigging was in flames. A boulder smashed into the quarterdeck. Another punched through the hull. The ship burst like a rotten pumpkin, and the engine exploded. The images in the northern doorway were even worse. Hazel saw Leo, unconscious or dead, falling through the clouds. She saw Frank staggering alone down a dark tunnel, clutching his arm, his shirt soaked in blood. And Hazel saw herself in a vast cavern, filled with strands of light like a luminous web. She was struggling to break through while, in the distance, Percy and Annabeth lay sprawled and unmoving at the foot of two black and silver metal doors. Choices, said Hecate. You stand at the crossroads, Hazel Levesque, and I am the goddess of crossroads. The ground rumbled at Hazel's feet. She looked down and saw the glint of silver coins. Thousands of old Roman denarii breaking the surface all around her, as if the entire hilltop was coming to a boil. She'd been so agitated by the visions in the doorways that she must have summoned every bit of silver in the surrounding countryside. The past is close to the surface in this place, Hecate said. In ancient times, two great Roman roads met here. News was exchanged, markets were held, friends met, and enemies fought. Entire armies had to choose a direction. Crossroads are always places of decision. Like, like Janus. Hazel remembered the shrine of Janus on Temple Hill back at Camp Jupiter. Demigods would go there to make decisions. They would flip a coin, heads or tails, and hope the two-faced god would guide them well. Hazel had always hated that place. She'd never understood why her friends were so willing to let a god take away their responsibility for choosing. After all Hazel had been through, she trusted the wisdom of the gods about as much as she trusted a New Orleans slot machine. The goddess of magic made a disgusted hiss. Janus in his doorways. He would have you believe that all choices are black or white, yes or no, in or out. In fact, it's not that simple. Whenever you reach the crossroads, there are always at least three ways to go. Four, if you count going backward. You are at such a crossing now, Hazel. Hazel looked again at each swirling gateway. A demigod war, the destruction of the Argo II, disaster for herself, and her friends. All the choices are bad. All choices have risks, the goddess corrected. But what is your goal? My goal? 
Hazel waved helplessly at the doorways. None of these. The dog Hecuba snarled. Gale, the polecat, skittered around the goddess's feet, farting and gnashing her teeth. You could go backward, Hecate suggested. Retrace your steps to Rome. But Gia's forces are expecting that. None of you will survive. So, what are you saying? Hecate stepped to the nearest torch. She scooped a handful of fire and sculpted the flames until she was holding a miniature relief map of Italy. You could go west. Hecate let her finger drift away from her fiery map. Go back to America with your prize, the Athena Parthenos. Your comrades back home, Greek and Roman, are on the brink of war. Leave now, and you might save many lives. Might, Hazel repeated. But Gia is supposed to wake in Greece. That's where the giants are gathering. True. Gia has set the date of August 1st, the Feast of Spes, goddess of hope, for her rise to power. By waking on the Day of Hope, she intends to destroy all hope forever. Even if you reached Greece by then, could you stop her? I do not know. Hecate traced her finger along the tops of the fiery Apennines. You could go east across the mountains, but Gia will do anything to stop you from crossing Italy. She has raised her mountain gods against you. We noticed, Hazel said. Any attempt to cross the Apennines will mean the destruction of your ship. Ironically, this might be the safest option for your crew. I foresee that all of you would survive the explosion. It is possible, though unlikely, you could still reach Epirus and close the doors of death. You might find Gia and prevent her rise. But by then, both demigod camps would be destroyed. You would have no home to return to. Hecate smiled. More likely, the destruction of your ship would strand you in the mountains. It would mean the end of your quest. But it would spare you and your friends much pain and suffering in the days to come. The war with the giants would have to be won or lost without you. Won or lost without us? A small, guilty part of Hazel found that appealing. She'd been wishing for the chance to be a normal girl. She didn't want any more pain or suffering for herself and her friends. They'd already been through so much. She looked behind Hecate at the middle gateway. She saw Percy and Annabeth sprawled helplessly before those black and silver doors. A massive, dark shape, vaguely humanoid, now loomed over them. Its foot raised as if to crush Percy. What about them? Hazel asked, her voice ragged. Percy and Annabeth. Hecate shrugged. West, east, or south. They die. Not an option, 
Hazel said. Then you have only one path, though it is the most dangerous. Hecate's finger crossed her miniature apennines, leaving a glowing white line in the red flames. There is a secret pass here in the north, a place where I hold sway, where Hannibal once crossed when he marched against Rome. The goddess made a wide loop. To the top of Italy, then east to the sea, then down along the western coast of Greece. Once through the pass, you would travel north to Bologna, and then to Venice. From there, sail the Adriatic to your goal here, a Epirus in Greece. Hazel didn't know much about geography. She had no idea what the Adriatic Sea was like. She'd never heard of Bologna and all she knew about Venice was vague stories about canals and gondolas. But one thing was obvious. That's so far out of the way. Which is why Gia will not expect you to take this route, Hecate said. I can obscure your progress somewhat, but the success of your journey will depend on you, Hazel Levesque. You must learn to use the mist. Me? Hazel's heart felt like it was tumbling down her ribcage. Use the mist how? Hecate extinguished her map of Italy. She flicked her hand at the black dog Hecuba. Mist collected around the Labrador until she was completely hidden in a cocoon of white. The fog cleared with an audible poof. Where the dog had stood was a disgruntled-looking black kitten with golden eyes. Meow, it complained. I am the goddess of the mist, Hecate explained. I am responsible for keeping the veil that separates the world of the gods from the world of mortals. My children learn to use the mist to their advantage create illusions or influence the minds of mortals. Other demigods can do this as well. And so must you, Hazel, if you are to help your friends. But... Hazel looked at the cat. She knew it was actually Hecuba, the black Labrador, but she couldn't convince herself. The cat seemed so real. I can't do that. Your mother had the talent, Hecate said. You have even more. As a child of Pluto who has returned from the dead, you understand the veil between worlds better than most. You can control the mist. If you do not, well, your brother Nico has already warned you. The spirits have whispered to him, told him of your future. When you reach the house of Hades, you will meet a formidable enemy. She cannot be overcome by strength or sword. You alone can defeat her, and you will require magic. Hazel's legs felt wobbly. She remembered Nico's grim expression, his fingers digging into her arm. You can't tell the others. Not yet. Their courage is already stretched to the limit. Who? 
Hazel croaked. Who is this enemy? I will not speak her name, Hecate said. That would alert her to your presence before you are ready to face her. Go north, Hazel. As you travel, practice summoning the mist. When you arrive in Bologna, seek out the two dwarfs. They will lead you to a treasure that may help you survive in the house of Hades. I don't understand. Meow. The kitten complained. Yes, yes, Hecuba. The goddess flicked her hand again, and the cat disappeared. The black Labrador was back in its place. You will understand, Hazel, the goddess promised. From time to time, I will send Gale to check on your progress. The polecat hissed, its beady red eyes full of malice. Wonderful, Hazel muttered. Before you reach Epirus, you must be prepared, Hecate said. If you succeed, then perhaps we will meet again for the final battle. A final battle, Hazel thought. Oh, joy. Hazel wondered if she could prevent the revelations she saw in the mist. Leo falling through the sky, Frank stumbling through the dark, alone and gravely wounded. Percy and Annabeth at the mercy of a dark giant. She hated the gods' riddles and their unclear advice. She was starting to despise Crossroads. Why are you helping me? Hazel demanded. At Camp Jupiter, they said you sided with the Titans in the last war. Hecate's dark eyes glinted. Because I am a Titan daughter of Perses and Asteria. Long before the Olympians came to power, I ruled the mist. Despite this, in the first Titan War millennia ago, I sided with Zeus against Kronos. I was not blind to Kronos's cruelty. I hoped Zeus would prove a better king. She made a small, bitter laugh. When Demeter lost her daughter Persephone, kidnapped by your father, I guided Demeter through the darkest night with my torches, helping her search. And when the giants rose the first time, I again sided with the gods. I fought my arch-enemy, Clytius, made by Gia to absorb and defeat all my magic. Clytius. Hazel had never heard that name. Clatius. But saying it made her limbs feel heavy. She glanced at the images in the northern doorway, the massive dark shape looming over Percy and Annabeth. Is he the threat in the house of Hades? Oh, he waits for you there, Hecate said. But first, you must defeat the witch. Unless you manage that... She snapped her fingers, and all of the gateways turned dark. The mist dissolved, the images gone. We all face choices, the goddess said. When Kronos arose the second time, I made a mistake. I supported him. I had grown tired of being ignored by the so-called 
major gods. Despite my years of faithful service, they mistrusted me, refused me a seat in their hall. The polecat Gale chittered angrily. It does not matter anymore, the goddess sighed. I have made peace again with Olympus. Even now, when they are laid low, their Greek and Roman personas fighting each other, I will help them, Greek or Roman. I have always been only Hecate. I will assist you against the giants if you prove yourself worthy. So now it is your choice, Hazel Levesque. Will you trust me, or will you shun me, as the Olympian gods have done too often? Blood roared in Hazel's ears. Could she trust this dark goddess who'd given her mother the magic that ruined her life? Sorry, no. She didn't much like Hecate's dog or her gassy polecat either. But she also knew she couldn't let Percy and Annabeth die. I'll go north, she said. We'll take your secret pass through the mountains. Hecate nodded, the slightest hint of satisfaction in her face. You have chosen well, though the path will not be easy. Many monsters will rise against you. Even some of my own servants have sided with Chia, hoping to destroy your mortal world. The goddess took her double torches from their stands. Prepare yourself, daughter of Pluto. If you succeed against the witch, we will meet again. I'll succeed, Hazel promised. And Hecate, I'm not choosing one of your paths. I'm making my own. The goddess arched her eyebrows. Her polecat writhed, and her dog snarled. We're going to find a way to stop Gia, Hazel said. We're going to rescue our friends from Tartarus. We're going to keep the crew and the ship together. And we're going to stop Camp Jupiter and Camp Half-Blood from going to war. We're going to do it all. The storm howled, the black walls of the funnel clouds swirling faster. Interesting, Hecate said as if Hazel were an unexpected result in a science experiment. That would be magic worth seeing. A wave of darkness blotted out the world. When Hazel's sight returned, the storm, the goddess, and her minions were gone. Hazel stood on the hillside in the morning sunlight, alone in the ruins except for Orion, who paced next to her, nickering impatiently. I agree, Hazel told the horse. Let's get out of here. What happened? Leo asked as Hazel climbed aboard the Argo too. Hazel's hands still shook from her talk with the goddess. She glanced over the rail and saw the dust of Orion's wake stretching across the hills of Italy. She had hoped her friend would stay, but... Couldn't blame him for wanting to get away from this place as fast as possible. The countryside sparkled as the summer sun hit the morning dew. On the hill, the old ruins stood white and silent. No sign of ancient paths or goddesses 
or farting weasels. Hazel? Nico asked. Her knees buckled. Nico and Leo grabbed her arms and helped her to the steps of the foredeck. She felt embarrassed, collapsing like some fairy tale damsel, but her energy was gone. The memory of those glowing scenes at the crossroads filled her with dread. I met Hecate, she managed. She didn't tell them everything. She remembered what Nico had said. Their courage is already stretched to the limits. But she told them about the secret northern pass through the mountains and the detour Hecate described that could take them to Epirus. When she was done, Nico took her hand. His eyes were full of concern. Hazel, you met Hecate at a crossroads. That's... That's something many demigods don't survive. And the ones who do survive are never the same. Are you sure you're... I'm fine, she insisted. But she knew she wasn't. She remembered how bold and angry she'd felt, telling the goddess she'd find her own path and succeed at everything. Now her boast seemed ridiculous. Her courage had abandoned her. What if Hecate is tricking us? Leo asked. This route could be a trap. Hazel shook her head. If it was a trap, I think Hecate would have made the northern route sound tempting. Believe me, she didn't. Leo pulled a calculator out of his tool belt and punched in some numbers. That's something like 300 miles out of our way to get to Venice. Then we'd have to backtrack down the Adriatic. And you said something about baloney dwarfs? Dwarfs in Bologna, Hazel said. I guess Bologna is a city, but why we have to find dwarfs there, I have no idea. Some sort of treasure to help us with the quest. Huh, Leo said. I mean, I'm all about treasure, but... It's our best option. Nico helped Hazel to her feet. We have to make up for lost time. Travel as fast as we can. Percy's and Annabeth's lives might depend on it. Fast? Leo grinned. I can do fast. He hurried to the console and started flipping switches. Nico took Hazel's arm and guided her out of earshot. What else did Hecate say? Anything about... I can't. Hazel cut him off. The images she'd seen had almost overwhelmed her. Percy and Annabeth, helpless at the feet of those black metal doors. The dark giant looming over them. Hazel herself, trapped in a glowing maze of light, unable to help. You must defeat the witch, Hecate had said. You alone can defeat her. Unless you manage that. The end, Hazel thought. All gateways closed. All hope extinguished. Nico had warned her. He'd communed with the dead, heard them whispering hints about their future. Two children of the underworld would enter the house of Hades. They would face an impossible foe, 
only one of them would make it to the doors of death. Hazel couldn't meet her brother's eyes. I'll tell you later, she promised, trying to keep her voice from trembling. Right now, we should rest while we can. Tonight, we cross the Apennines. Chapter 5 Annabeth Nine Days As she fell, Annabeth thought about Hesiod, the old Greek poet, who'd speculated it would take nine days to fall from Earth to Tartarus. She hoped Hesiod was wrong. She'd lost track of how long Percy and she had been falling. Hours? A day? It felt like an eternity. They'd been holding hands ever since they dropped into the chasm. Now Percy pulled her close, hugging her tight as they tumbled through absolute darkness. Wind whistled in Annabeth's ears. The air grew hotter and damper, as if they were plummeting into the throat of a massive dragon. Her recently broken ankle throbbed, though she couldn't tell if it was still wrapped in spiderwebs. That cursed monster, Arachne. Despite having been trapped in her own webbing, smashed by a car, and plunged into Tartarus, the spider lady had gotten her revenge. Somehow, her silk had entangled Annabeth's leg and dragged her over the side of the pit, with Percy in tow. Annabeth couldn't imagine that Arachne was still alive, somewhere below them in the darkness. She didn't want to meet that monster again when they reached the bottom. On the bright side, assuming there was a bottom, Annabeth and Percy would probably be flattened on impact, so giant spiders were the least of their worries. She wrapped her arms around Percy and tried not to sob. She'd never expected her life to be easy. Most demigods died young at the hands of terrible monsters. That's the way it had been since ancient times. The Greeks invented tragedy. They knew the greatest heroes didn't get happy endings. Still, this wasn't fair. She'd gone through so much to retrieve that statue of Athena. Just when she'd succeeded, when things had been looking up and she'd been reunited with Percy, they had plunged to their deaths. Even the gods couldn't devise a fate so twisted. But Gia wasn't like other gods. The Earth Mother was older, more vicious, more bloodthirsty. Annabeth could imagine her laughing as they fell into the depths. Annabeth pressed her lips to Percy's ear. I love you. She wasn't sure he could hear her, but if they died... She wanted those to be her last words. She tried desperately to think of a plan to save them. She was a daughter of Athena. She'd proven herself in the tunnels under Rome, beaten a whole series of challenges with only her wits. But she couldn't think of any way to reverse or even slow their fall. Neither of them had the power to fly. Not like Jason, who could control the wind. Or Frank, who could turn into a winged animal. If they reached the bottom at terminal velocity, well, she knew enough science to know it would be terminal. 
she was seriously wondering whether they could fashion a parachute out of their shirts. That's how desperate she was, when something about their surroundings changed. The darkness took on a gray-red tinge. She realized she could see Percy's hair as she hugged him. The whistling in her ears turned into more of a roar. The air became intolerably hot, permeated with a smell like rotten eggs. Suddenly, the chute they'd been falling through opened into a vast cavern. Maybe half a mile below them, Annabeth could see the bottom. For a moment, she was too stunned to think properly. The entire island of Manhattan could have fit inside this cavern, and she couldn't even see its full extent. Red clouds hung in the air like vaporized blood. The landscape, at least what she could see of it, was rocky black plains, punctuated by jagged mountains and fiery chasms. To Annabeth's left, the ground dropped off in a series of cliffs, like colossal steps leading deeper into the abyss. The stench of sulfur made it hard to concentrate, but she focused on the ground directly below them and saw a ribbon of glittering black liquid. A river. Percy! She yelled in his ear. Water! She gestured frantically. Percy's face was hard to read in the dim red light. He looked shell-shocked and terrified, but he nodded as if he understood. Percy could control water, assuming that was water below them. He might be able to cushion their fall somehow. Of course, Annabeth had heard horrible stories about the rivers of the underworld. They could take away your memories or burn your body and soul to ashes. But she decided not to think about that. This was their only chance. The river hurtled toward them. At the last second, Percy yelled defiantly. The water erupted in a massive geyser and swallowed them whole. Chapter 6 Annabeth The impact didn't kill her, but the cold nearly did. Freezing water shocked the air right out of her lungs. Her limbs turned rigid, and she lost her grip on Percy. She began to sink. Strange wailing sounds filled her ears. Millions of heartbroken voices as if the river were made of distilled sadness. The voices were worse than the cold. They weighed her down and made her numb. What's the point of struggling? They told her. You're dead anyway. You'll never leave this place. She could sink to the bottom and drown, let the river carry her body away. That would be easier. She could just close her eyes. Percy gripped her hand and jolted her back to reality. She couldn't see him in the murky water, but suddenly, she didn't want to die. Together, they kicked upward and broke the surface. Annabeth gasped, grateful for the air, no matter how sulfurous. The water swirled around them, and she realized Percy was creating a whirlpool to buoy them up. 
Though she couldn't make out their surroundings, she knew this was a river. Rivers had shores. Land, she croaked. Go sideways. Percy looked near dead with exhaustion. Usually water reinvigorated him, but not this water. Controlling it must have taken every bit of his strength. The whirlpool began to dissipate. Annabeth hooked one arm around his waist and struggled across the current. The river worked against her. Thousands of weeping voices whispering in her ears, getting inside her brain. Life is despair, they said. Everything is pointless, and then you die. Pointless, Percy murmured. His teeth chattered from the cold. He stopped swimming and began to sink. Percy, she shrieked. The river is messing with your mind. It's the Cocytus, the river of lamentation. It's made of pure misery. Misery, he agreed. Fight it. She kicked and struggled, trying to keep both of them afloat. Another cosmic joke for Gia to laugh at. Annabeth dies trying to keep her boyfriend, the son of Poseidon, from drowning. Not going to happen, you hag, Annabeth thought. She hugged Percy tighter and kissed him. Tell me about New Rome, she demanded. What were your plans for us? New Rome for us. Yes, yeah, seaweed brain. You said we could have a future there. Tell me. Annabeth had never wanted to leave Camp Half-Blood. It was the only real home she'd ever known. But days ago, on the Argo too, Percy had told her that he imagined a future for the two of them among the Roman demigods. In their city of New Rome, veterans of the Legion could settle down safely, go to college, get married, and even have kids. Architecture, Percy murmured. The fog started to clear from his eyes. Thought you'd like the houses, the parks. There's one street with all these cool fountains. Annabeth started making progress against the current. Her limbs felt like bags of wet sand. But Percy was helping her now. She could see the dark line of the shore about a stone's throw away. College, she gasped. Could we go there together? Y yeah, he agreed a little more confidently. What would you study, Percy? Dunno, he admitted. Marine science, she suggested. Oceanography? Surfing? he asked. She laughed and the sound sent a shockwave through the water. The wailing faded to background noise. Annabeth wondered if anyone had ever laughed in Tartarus before. Just a pure, simple laugh of pleasure. She doubted it. She used the last of her strength to reach the riverbank. Her feet dug into the sandy bottom. She and Percy hauled themselves ashore, shivering and gasping and collapsed on the dark sand. Annabeth wanted to curl up next to Percy and go to sleep. She wanted to shut her eyes, 
hope all of this was just a bad dream, and wake up to find herself back on the Argo too, safe with her friends. Well, as safe as a demigod can ever be. But no. They were really in Tartarus. At their feet, the river Cocytus roared past, a flood of liquid wretchedness. The sulfurous air stung Annabeth's lungs and prickled her skin. When she looked at her arms, she saw they were already covered with an angry rash. She tried to sit up and gasped in pain. The beach wasn't sand. They were sitting on a field of jagged black glass chips, some of which were now embedded in Annabeth's palms. So the air was acid, the water was misery, the ground was broken glass. Everything here was designed to hurt and kill. Annabeth took a rattling breath and wondered if the voices in the Cocytus were right. Maybe fighting for survival was pointless. They would be dead within the hour. Next to her, Percy coughed. This place smells like my ex-stepfather. Annabeth managed a weak smile. She'd never met Smelly Gabe, but she'd heard enough stories. She loved Percy for trying to lift her spirits. If she'd fallen into Tartarus by herself, Annabeth thought, she would have been doomed. After all she'd been through beneath Rome, finding the Athena Parthenos, this was simply too much. She would have curled up and cried until she became another ghost, melting into the Cocytus. But she wasn't alone. She had Percy, and that meant she couldn't give up. She forced herself to take stock. Her foot was still wrapped in its makeshift cast of board and bubble wrap, still tangled in cobwebs. But when she moved it, it didn't hurt. The ambrosia she'd eaten in the tunnels under Rome must have finally mended her bones. Her backpack was gone, lost during the fall, or maybe washed away in the river. She hated losing Daedalus's laptop, with all its fantastic programs and data. But she had worse problems. Her celestial bronze dagger was missing, the weapon she'd carried since she was seven years old. The realization almost broke her, but she couldn't let herself dwell on it. Time to grieve later. What else did they have? No food, no water, basically no supplies at all. Yep, off to a promising start. Annabeth glanced at Percy. He looked pretty bad. His dark hair was plastered across his forehead, his t-shirt ripped to shreds. His fingers were scraped raw from holding on to that ledge before they fell. Most worrisome of all, he was shivering, and his lips were blue. We should keep moving or we'll get hypothermia, Annabeth said. Can you stand? He nodded. They both struggled to their feet. Annabeth put her arm around his waist, though she wasn't sure who was supporting whom. She scanned their surroundings. Above, she saw no sign of the tunnel they'd fallen down. She couldn't even see the cavern roof. Just blood-colored clouds floating in the hazy gray air. 
It was like staring through a thin mix of tomato soup and cement. The black glass beach stretched inland about fifty yards, then dropped off the edge of a cliff. From where she stood, Annabeth couldn't see what was below, but the edge flickered with red light as if illuminated by huge fires. A distant memory tugged at her. Something about Tartarus and fire. Before she could think too much about it, Percy inhaled sharply. Look, he pointed downstream. A hundred feet away, a familiar-looking baby-blue Italian car had crashed headfirst into the sand. It looked just like the Fiat that had smashed into Arachne and sent her plummeting into the pit. Annabeth hoped she was wrong, but how many Italian sports cars could there be in Tartarus? Part of her didn't want to go anywhere near it, but she had to find out. She gripped Percy's hand, and they stumbled toward the wreckage. One of the car's tires had come off and was floating in a backwater eddy of the Cocytus. The Fiat's windows had shattered, sending brighter glass like frosting across the dark beach. Under the crushed hood lay the tattered, glistening remains of a giant silk cocoon, the trap that Annabeth had tricked Arachne into weaving. It was unmistakably empty. Slash marks in the sand made a trail downriver as if something heavy, with multiple legs, had scuttled into the darkness. She's alive! Annabeth was so horrified, so outraged by the unfairness of it all, she had to suppress the urge to throw up. It's Tartarus, Percy said. Monster home court. Down here, maybe they can't be killed. He gave Annabeth an embarrassed look as if realizing he wasn't helping Team Morale. Or maybe she's badly wounded and she crawled away to die. Let's go with that, Annabeth agreed. Percy was still shivering. Annabeth wasn't feeling any warmer either, despite the hot, sticky air. The glass cuts on her hands were still bleeding, which was unusual for her. Normally, she healed fast. Her breathing got more and more labored. This place is killing us, she said. I mean, it's literally going to kill us, unless... Tartarus. Fire. That distant memory came into focus. She gazed inland toward the cliff, illuminated by flames from below. It was an absolutely crazy idea, but it might be their only chance. Unless what? Percy prompted. You've got a brilliant plan, haven't you? It's a plan, Annabeth murmured. I don't know about brilliant. We need to find the River of Fire. Chapter 7 Annabeth When they reached the ledge, Annabeth was sure she'd signed their death warrants. The cliff dropped more than 80 feet. At the bottom stretched a nightmarish version of the Grand Canyon, a river of fire cutting a path through a jagged obsidian crevasse. 
the glowing red current casting horrible shadows across the cliff faces. Even from the top of the canyon, the heat was intense. The chill of the river Cocytus hadn't left Annabeth's bones, but now her face felt raw and sunburned. Every breath took more effort, as if her chest was filled with styrofoam peanuts. The cuts on her hands bled more rather than less. Annabeth's foot, which had been almost healed, seemed to be re-injuring itself. She'd taken off her makeshift cast, but now she regretted it. Each step made her wince. Assuming they could make it down to the fiery river, which she doubted, her plan seemed certifiably insane. Uh... Percy examined the cliff. He pointed to a tiny fissure running diagonally from the edge to the bottom. We can try that ledge there. Might be able to climb down. He didn't say they'd be crazy to try. He managed to sound hopeful. Annabeth was grateful for that, but she also worried that she was leading him to his doom. Of course, if they stayed here, they would die anyway. Blisters had started to form on their arms from exposure to the Tartarus air. The whole environment was about as healthy as a nuclear blast zone. Percy went first. The ledge was barely wide enough to allow a toehold. Their hands clawed for any crack in the glassy rock. Every time Annabeth put pressure on her bad foot, she wanted to yelp. She'd ripped off the sleeves of her T-shirt and used the cloth to wrap her bloody palms, but her fingers were still slippery and weak. A few steps below her, Percy grunted as he reached for another handhold. So, what is this fire river called? The Phlegathon, she said. You should concentrate on going down. The Phlegathon? He shinnied along the edge. They'd made it roughly a third of the way down the cliff, still high enough up to die if they fell. Sounds like a marathon for hawking spitballs. Please don't make me laugh, she said. Just trying to keep things light. Thanks, she grunted, nearly missing the ledge with her bad foot. I'll have a smile on my face as I plummet to my death. They kept going, one step at a time. Annabeth's eyes stung with sweat. Her arms trembled. But to her amazement, they finally made it to the bottom of the cliff. When she reached the ground, she stumbled. Percy caught her. She was alarmed by how feverish his skin felt. Red boils had erupted on his face, so he looked like a smallpox victim. Her own vision was blurry. Her throat felt blistered, and her stomach was clenched tighter than a fist. We have to hurry, she thought. Just to the river, she told Percy, trying to keep the panic out of her voice. We can do this. They staggered over slick glass ledges around massive boulders, avoiding stalagmites that would have impaled them with any slip of the foot. Their tattered clothes steamed from the heat of the river but they kept going until they crumpled to their knees at the banks of the Phlegathon. We have to drink, Annabeth said. 
Percy swayed, his eyes half-closed. It took him a three-count to respond. Uh, drink fire? The Phlegathon flows from Hades' realm down into Tartarus. Annabeth could barely talk. Her throat was closing up from the heat and the acidic air. The river is used to punish the wicked, but also, some legends call it the River of Healing. Some legends? Annabeth swallowed, trying to stay conscious. The Phlegathon keeps the wicked in one piece so that they can endure the torments of the fields of punishment. I think it might be the underworld equivalent of ambrosia and nectar. Percy winced as cinders sprayed from the river, curling around his face. But it's fire. How can we... Like this. Annabeth thrust her hands into the river. Stupid? Yes. But she was convinced they had no choice. If they waited any longer, they would pass out and die. Better to try something foolish and hope it worked. On first contact, the fire wasn't painful. It felt cold, which probably meant it was so hot it was overloading Annabeth's nerves. Before she could change her mind, she cupped the fiery liquid in her palms and raised it to her mouth. She expected a taste like gasoline. It was so much worse. Once, at a restaurant back in San Francisco, she'd made the mistake of tasting a ghost chili pepper that came with a plate of Indian food. After barely nibbling it, she thought her respiratory system was going to implode. Drinking from the phlegathon was like gulping down a ghost chili smoothie. Her sinuses filled with liquid flame. Her mouth felt like it was being deep-fried. Her eyes shed boiling tears, and every pore on her face popped. She collapsed, gagging and retching, her whole body shaking violently. Annabeth! Percy grabbed her arms and just managed to stop her from rolling into the river. The convulsions passed. She took a ragged breath and managed to sit up. She felt horribly weak and nauseous, but her next breath came more easily. The blisters on her arms were starting to fade. It worked, she croaked. Percy, you've got a drink. I... His eyes rolled up in his head, and he slumped against her. Desperately, she cupped more fire in her palm. Ignoring the pain, she dripped the liquid into Percy's mouth. He didn't respond. She tried again, pouring a whole handful down his throat. This time he spluttered and coughed. Annabeth held him as he trembled, the magical fire coursing through his system. His fever disappeared. His boils faded. He managed to sit up and smack his lips. Ugh, he said. Spicy, yet disgusting. Annabeth laughed weakly. She was so relieved, she felt lightheaded. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. You saved us. For now, she said. The problem is, we're still in Tartarus. Percy blinked. 
He looked around as if just coming to terms with where they were. Holy Hera, I never thought... Well, I'm not sure what I thought. Maybe that Tartarus was empty space, a pit with no bottom. But this is a real place. Annabeth recalled the landscape she'd seen while they fell, a series of plateaus leading ever downward into the gloom. We haven't seen all of it, she warned. This could be just the first tiny part of the abyss, like the front steps. The welcome mat, Percy muttered. They both gazed up at the blood-colored clouds swirling in the gray haze. No way would they have the strength to climb back up that cliff, even if they wanted to. Now there were only two choices, downriver or upriver, skirting the banks of the Phlegathon. We'll find a way out, Percy said, the doors of death. Annabeth shuddered. She remembered what Percy had said just before they fell into Tartarus. He'd made Nico D'Angelo promise to lead the Argo II to Epirus, to the mortal side of the doors of death. We'll see you there, Percy had said. That idea seemed even crazier than drinking fire. How could the two of them wander through Tartarus and find the doors of death? They'd barely been able to stumble a hundred yards in this poisonous place without dying. We have to. Percy said. Not just for us, for everybody we love. The doors have to be closed on both sides, or the monsters will just keep coming through. Gia's forces will overrun the world. Annabeth knew he was right. Still, when she tried to imagine a plan that could succeed, the logistics overwhelmed her. They had no way of locating the doors. They didn't know how much time it would take, or even if time flowed at the same speed in Tartarus. How could they possibly synchronize a meeting with their friends? And Nico had mentioned a legion of Gia's strongest monsters guarding the doors on the Tartarus side. Annabeth and Percy couldn't exactly launch a frontal assault. She decided not to mention any of that. They both knew the odds were bad. Besides, after swimming in the river Cocytus, Annabeth had heard enough whining and moaning to last a lifetime. She promised herself never to complain again. Well, she took a deep breath, grateful at least that her lungs didn't hurt. If we stay close to the river, we'll have a way to heal ourselves. If we go downstream... It happened so fast. Annabeth would have been dead if she'd been on her own. Percy's eyes locked on something behind her. Annabeth spun as a massive, dark shape hurtled down at her. A snarling, monstrous blob with spindly barbed legs and glinting eyes. She had time to think. Arachne. But she was frozen in terror, her senses smothered by the sickly sweet smell. Then she heard the familiar shink of Percy's ballpoint pen transforming into a sword. His blade swept over her head in a glowing bronze arc. A horrible wail echoed through the canyon. Annabeth stood there, stunned, as yellow dust, the remains of Arachne, 
rained around her like tree pollen. You okay? Percy scanned the cliffs and boulders, alert for more monsters, but nothing else appeared. The golden dust of the spider settled on the obsidian rocks. Annabeth stared at her boyfriend in amazement. Riptide's celestial bronze blade glowed even brighter in the gloom of Tartarus. As it passed through the thick, hot air, it made a defiant hiss like a riled snake. She... she would have killed me, Annabeth stammered. Percy kicked the dust on the rocks, his expression grim and dissatisfied. She died too easy, considering how much torture she put you through. She deserved worse. Annabeth couldn't argue with that, but the hard edge in Percy's voice made her unsettled. She'd never seen someone get so angry or vengeful on her behalf. It almost made her glad Arachne had died quickly. How did you move so fast? Percy shrugged. Gotta watch each other's backs, right? Now, you were saying, downstream? Annabeth nodded, still in a daze. The yellow dust dissipated on the rocky shore, turning to steam. At least now they knew monsters could be killed in Tartarus, though she had no idea how long Arachne would remain dead. Annabeth didn't plan on staying long enough to find out. Yeah, downstream, she managed. If the river comes from the upper levels of the underworld, it should flow deeper into Tartarus. So it leads into more dangerous territory, Percy finished. Which is probably where the doors are. Lucky us. Chapter 8 Annabeth They'd only traveled a few hundred yards when Annabeth heard voices. Annabeth plodded along, half in a stupor, trying to form a plan. Since she was a daughter of Athena, plans were supposed to be her specialty, but it was hard to strategize with her stomach growling and her throat baking. The fiery water of the Phlegathon may have healed her and given her strength, but it didn't do anything for her hunger or thirst. The river wasn't about making you feel good, Annabeth guessed. It just kept you going so you could experience more excruciating pain. Her head started to droop with exhaustion. Then she heard them. Female voices, having some sort of argument. And she was instantly alert. She whispered, Percy, down! She pulled him behind the nearest boulder, wedging herself so close against the riverbank that her shoes almost touched the river's fire. On the other side, in the narrow path between the river and the cliffs, voices snarled, getting louder as they approached from upstream. Annabeth tried to steady her breathing. The voices sounded vaguely human, but that meant nothing. She assumed anything in Tartarus was their enemy. She didn't know how the monsters could have failed to spot them already. Besides, monsters could smell demigods, especially powerful ones like Percy, son of Poseidon. Annabeth doubted that hiding behind a boulder would do any good when the monsters caught their scent. Still, as the monsters got nearer, their voices didn't change in tone, 
their uneven footsteps. Scrap. Clump. Scrap. Clump. Didn't get any faster. Soon? One of them asked in a raspy voice, as if she'd been gargling in the phlegathon. Oh my gods, said another voice. This one sounded much younger and much more human, like a teenaged mortal girl getting exasperated with her friends at the mall. For some reason, she sounded familiar to Annabeth. You guys are totally annoying. I told you, it's like three days from here. Percy gripped Annabeth's wrist. He looked at her with alarm, as if he recognized the mall girl's voice too. There was a chorus of growling and grumbling. The creatures, maybe half a dozen, Annabeth guessed, had paused just on the other side of the boulder. But still, they gave no indication that they'd caught the demigod's scent. Annabeth wondered if demigods didn't smell the same in Tartarus, or if the other scents here were so powerful they masked a demigod's aura. I wonder said a third voice, gravelly and ancient like the first. If perhaps you do not know the way, young one. Oh, shut your fang hole, Sir Ephany, said the mall girl. When's the last time you escaped to the mortal world? I was there a couple of years ago. I know the way. Besides, I understand what we're facing up there. You don't have a clue. The Earth Mother did not make you boss, shrieked a fourth voice. More hissing, scuffling, and feral moans, like giant alley cats fighting. At last, the one called Serephony yelled, Enough! The scuffling died down. We will follow for now, Serephony said. But if you do not lead us well... If we find you have lied about the summons of Gia. I don't lie, snapped the mall girl. Believe me, I've got good reason to get into this battle. I have some enemies to devour, and you'll feast on the blood of heroes. Just leave one special morsel for me, the one named Percy Jackson. Annabeth fought down a snarl of her own. She forgot about her fear. She wanted to jump over the boulder and slash the monsters to dust with her knife. Except she didn't have it anymore. Believe me, said the mall girl. Gia has called us and we're going to have so much fun. Before this war is over, mortals and demigods will tremble at the sound of my name. Kelly! Annabeth almost yelped aloud. She glanced at Percy. Even in the red light of the phlegathon, his face seemed waxy. Empusai, she mouthed. Vampires. Percy nodded grimly. She remembered Kelly. Two years ago, at Percy's freshman orientation, he and their friend Rachel Dare had been attacked by Empusai, disguised as cheerleaders. One of them had been Kelly. Later, the same Impusa had attacked them in Daedalus's workshop. Annabeth had stabbed her in the back and sent her... here. To Tartarus. The creatures shuffled off, their voice getting fainter. 
Annabeth crept to the edge of the boulder and risked a glimpse. Sure enough, five women staggered along on mismatched legs. Mechanical bronze on the left, shaggy and cloven-hooved on the right. Their hair was made of fire, their skin as white as bone. Most of them wore tattered ancient Greek dresses, except for the one in the lead, Kelly, who wore a burned and torn blouse with a short pleated skirt, her cheerleader's outfit. Annabeth gritted her teeth. She had faced a lot of bad monsters over the years, but she hated Empusai more than most. In addition to their nasty claws and fangs, they had a powerful ability to manipulate the mist. They could change shape and charm speak, tricking mortals into letting down their guard. Men were especially susceptible. The Empusa's favorite tactic was to make a guy fall in love with her, then drink his blood and devour his flesh. Not a great first date. Kelly had almost killed Percy. She had manipulated Annabeth's oldest friend, Luke, urging him to commit darker and darker deeds in the name of Kronos. Annabeth really wished she still had her dagger. Percy rose. They're heading for the doors of death, he murmured. You know what that means? Annabeth didn't want to think about it. But sadly, this squad of flesh-eating horror-show women might be the closest thing to good luck they were going to get in Tartarus. Yeah, she said. We need to follow them. Chapter 9 Leo Leo spent the night wrestling with a forty-foot-tall Athena. Ever since they'd brought the statue aboard, Leo had been obsessed with figuring out how it worked. He was sure it had primo powers. There had to be a secret switch or a pressure plate or something. He was supposed to be sleeping, but he just couldn't. He spent hours crawling over the statue, which took up most of the lower deck. Athena's feet stuck into sickbay so you had to squeeze past her ivory toes if you wanted some Advil. Her body ran the length of the port corridor, her outstretched hand jutting into the engine room, offering the life-sized figure of Nike that stood in her palm like, Here, have some victory. Athena's serene face took up most of the aft Pegasus stables, which were fortunately unoccupied. If Leo were a magic horse... He wouldn't have wanted to live in a stall with an oversized goddess of wisdom staring at him. The statue was wedged tight in the corridor, so Leo had to climb over the top and wriggle under her limbs, searching for levers and buttons. As usual, he found nothing. He'd done some research on the statue. He knew it was made from a hollow wooden frame, covered in ivory and gold, which explained why it was so light. It was in pretty good shape, considering it was more than 2,000 years old, had been pillaged from Athens, toted to Rome, and secretly stored in a spider's cavern for most of the past two millennia. Magic must have kept it intact, Leo figured, combined with really good craftsmanship. Annabeth had said, well, he tried not to think about Annabeth. He still felt guilty about her and Percy falling into Tartarus. 
Leo knew it was his fault. He should have gotten everyone safely on board the Argo too before he started securing the statue. He should have realized the cavern floor was unstable. Still, moping around wasn't going to get Percy and Annabeth back. He had to concentrate on fixing the problems he could fix. Anyway, Annabeth had said the statue was the key to defeating Gia. It could heal the rift between Greek and Roman demigods. Leo figured there had to be more to it than just symbolism. Maybe Athena's eyes shot lasers, or the snake behind her shield could spit poison. Or maybe the smaller figure of Nike came to life and busted out some ninja moves. Leo could think of all kinds of fun things the statue might do if he had designed it. But the more he examined it, the more frustrated he got. The Athena Parthenos radiated magic. Even he could feel that. But it didn't seem to do anything except look impressive. The ship careened to one side, taking evasive maneuvers. Leo resisted the urge to run to the helm. Jason, Piper, and Frank were on duty with Hazel now. They could handle whatever was going on. Besides, Hazel had insisted on taking the wheel to guide them through the secret pass that the magic goddess had told her about. Leo hoped Hazel was right about the long detour north. He didn't trust this Hecate lady. He didn't see why such a creepy goddess would suddenly decide to be helpful. Of course, he didn't trust magic in general. That's why he was having so much trouble with the Athena Parthenos. It had no moving parts. Whatever it did, it apparently operated on pure sorcery, and Leo didn't appreciate that. He wanted it to make sense, like a machine. Finally, he got too exhausted to think straight. He curled up with a blanket in the engine room and listened to the soothing hum of the generators. Buford, the mechanical table, sat in the corner on sleep mode making little steamy snores. Shh. Pff. Shh. Pff. Leo liked his quarters okay, but he felt safest here in the heart of the ship, in a room filled with mechanisms he knew how to control. Besides, maybe if he spent more time close to the Athena Parthenos, he would eventually soak in its secrets. It's you or me, big lady he murmured as he pulled the blanket up to his chin. You're gonna cooperate eventually. He closed his eyes and slept. Unfortunately, that meant dreams. He was running for his life through his mother's old workshop, where she died in a fire when Leo was eight. He wasn't sure what was chasing him, but he sensed it closing fast. Something large and dark and full of hate. He stumbled into workbenches, knocked over toolboxes, and tripped on electrical cords. He spotted the exit and sprinted toward it, but a figure loomed in front of him, a woman in robes of dry, swirling earth, her face covered in a veil of dust. Where are you going, little hero? Gia asked. Stay and meet my favorite son. Leo darted to the left, but the earth goddess's laughter followed him. 
The night your mother died, I warned you. I said the fates would not allow me to kill you then. But now you have chosen your path. Your death is near, Leo Valdez. He ran into a drafting table, his mother's old workstation. The wall behind it was decorated with Leo's crayon drawings. He sobbed in desperation and turned, but the thing pursuing him now stood in his path, a colossal being wrapped in shadows, its shape vaguely humanoid, its head almost scraping the ceiling twenty feet above. Leo's hands burst into flame. He blasted the giant, but the darkness consumed his fire. Leo reached for his tool belt. The pockets were sewn shut. He tried to speak, to say anything that would save his life, but he couldn't make a sound, as if the air had been stolen from his lungs. My son will not allow any fires tonight, Gia said from the depths of the warehouse. He is the void that consumes all magic, the cold that consumes all fire, the silence that consumes all speech. Leo wanted to shout, And I'm the dude that's all out of here! His voice didn't work, so he used his feet. He dashed to the right, ducking under the shadowy giant's grasping hands, and burst through the nearest doorway. Suddenly, he found himself at Camp Half-Blood, except the camp was in ruins. The cabins were charred husks. Burned fields smoldered in the moonlight. The dining pavilion had collapsed into a pile of white rubble, and the big house was on fire, its windows glowing like demon eyes. Leo kept running, sure the shadow giant was still behind him. He wove around the bodies of Greek and Roman demigods. He wanted to check if they were alive. He wanted to help them. But somehow he knew he was running out of time. He jogged toward the only living people he saw, a group of Romans standing at the volleyball pit. Two centurions leaned casually on their javelins, chatting with a tall, skinny, blonde guy in a purple toga. Leo stumbled. It was that freak Octavian, the auger from Camp Jupiter, who was always screaming for war. Octavian turned to face him, but he seemed to be in a trance. His features were slack, his eyes closed. When he spoke, it was in Gia's voice. This cannot be prevented. The Romans move east from New York. They advance on your camp and nothing can slow them down. Leo was tempted to punch Octavian in the face. Instead, he kept running. He climbed Half-Blood Hill. At the summit, lightning had splintered the giant pine tree. He faltered to a stop. The back of the hill was shorn away. Beyond it, the entire world was gone. Leo saw nothing but clouds far below a rolling silver carpet under the dark sky. A sharp voice said, Well? Leo flinched. At the shattered pine tree, a woman knelt at a cave entrance that had cracked open between the tree's roots.
the woman wasn't Gia. She looked more like a living Athena Parthenos, with the same golden robes and bare ivory arms. When she rose, Leo almost stumbled off the edge of the world. Her face was regally beautiful, with high cheekbones, large dark eyes, and braided licorice-colored hair piled in a fancy Greek hairdo, set with a spiral of emeralds and diamonds, so that it reminded Leo of a Christmas tree. Her expression radiated pure hatred. Her lip curled. Her nose wrinkled. The tinkerer god's child, she sneered. You are no threat, but I suppose my vengeance must start somewhere. Make your choice. Leo tried to speak, but he was about to crawl out of his skin with panic. Between this hate queen and the giant chasing him, he had no idea what to do. He'll be here soon, the woman warned. My dark friend will not give you the luxury of a choice. It's the cliff or the cave, boy. Suddenly, Leo understood what she meant. He was cornered. He could jump off the cliff, but that was suicide. Even if there was land under those clouds, he would die in the fall. Or maybe he would just keep falling forever. But the cave... He stared at the dark opening between the tree roots. It smelled of rot and death. He heard bodies shuffling inside, voices whispering in the shadows. The cave was the home of the dead. If he went down there, he would never come back. Yes, the woman said. Around her neck hung a strange bronze and emerald pendant, like a circular labyrinth. Her eyes were so angry, Leo finally understood why mad was a word for crazy. This lady had been driven nuts by hatred. The house of Hades awaits. You will be the first puny rodent to die in my maze. You have only one chance to escape, Leo Valdez. Take it. She gestured toward the cliff. You're bonkers, he managed. That was the wrong thing to say. She seized his wrist. Perhaps I should kill you now, before my dark friend arrives? Steps shook the hillside. The giant was coming, wrapped in shadows, huge and heavy and bent on murder. Have you heard of dying in a dream, boy? The woman asked. It is possible at the hands of a sorceress. Leo's arm started to smoke. The woman's touch was acid. He tried to free himself, but her grip was like steel. He opened his mouth to scream. The massive shape of the giant loomed over him, obscured by layers of black smoke. The giant raised his fist, and a voice cut through the dream. Leo! Jason was shaking his shoulder. Hey, man, why are you hugging Nike? Leo's eyes fluttered open. His arms were wrapped around the human-sized statue in Athena's hand. He must have been thrashing in his sleep. He clung to the victory goddess like he used to cling to his pillow when he had nightmares as a kid. Man, that had been so embarrassing in the foster homes.
He disentangled himself and sat up, rubbing his face. Nothing, he muttered. We were just cuddling. Um, what's going on? Jason didn't tease him. That's one thing Leo appreciated about his friend. Jason's ice-blue eyes were level and serious. The little scar on his mouth twitched like it always did when he had bad news to share. We made it through the mountains, he said. We're almost to Bologna. You should join us in the mess hall. Nico has new information. Chapter 10 Leo Leo had designed the mess hall's walls to show real-time scenes from Camp Half-Blood. At first, he had thought that was a pretty awesome idea. Now he wasn't so sure. The scenes from back home, the campfire sing-alongs, dinners at the pavilion, volleyball games outside the big house, just seemed to make his friends sad. The farther they got from Long Island, the worse it got. The time zones kept changing, making Leo feel the distance every time he looked at the walls. Here in Italy, the sun had just come up, 